Good morning. Uh, for those who may not know me, my name is Michael, Michael Sigelko. I'm on staff here. I work with the youth, one of the youth pastors. Uh, this morning, I get to bring the message, and I'm thankful for that. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in, because there are many things that we need to discuss this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Uh, allow the words of your scripture to penetrate into our hearts and minds, bring us understanding of who you are and the instruction that you have for us. Father, you are good and faithful in all times. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we're continuing on in our series, going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 6, starting on verse 14, and we're going to be going up until chapter 7, verse 1. So I invite you to turn there now. We will have the words up on the screen. I encourage you to keep it open in front of you throughout the whole message as well. It'll help us keep one train of thought going. <clears throat> starting in verse 14, we read, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You know, it's, it's a relatively short passage. It's just six verses that we read, but it kind of feels long, kind of the sense that it's dragging on, almost like the idea of a parent giving a lecture to their child for the hundredth time about the same thing. And you can just almost hear the anxiousness of the church of Corinth responding to Paul's rant that he's going on. Paul's saying, like, okay, what partnership does lawlessness have with righteousness? None. What about light with darkness? None. Well, don't you know that God said, yes, and that he will live, yes, Mr. Paul, sir, sorry. There is a bit of a rant that Paul is going on here, and he provides a whole lot of supporting evidence for the argument that he's making. But I think that we can, at times, kind of insert our own tone into the scripture, which has a tendency to skew the proper meaning of the passage. So for a moment, let's take some of that attitude out of the text, and if we just condense it to Paul's main points that he's making, it would read more like this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for we are the temple of the living God. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So that is kind of the, the big idea, the main command that Paul is giving to the church, the main thing that we're going to seek to unpack and grow in our understanding this morning. However, it's in all of these supporting arguments that bring life and the richness to this passage. So it's important that we look at those as well. Paul is speaking to a broken and a hurting church. The church of Corinth is not doing well. And though Paul is stern with them, 
He's not condemning them. Rather, he is reaching down to them and saying, there's a far greater way of life that we're being invited into, but it requires something of us. So let's go back to the start and work our way through this. Verse 14, again we read, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we need to pause here, and we need to talk about this, because it's a very common and popular verse, but yet one that many of us have a misunderstanding of. Most often, this verse being unequally yoked is interpreted as, as a believer, you should not get married to an unbeliever. Well, that is both a right and a wrong interpretation of this text. So what do we start with? Let's start with what's right. What's right about that understanding? Uh, Let's explore the imagery that Paul is using here, the imagery of a yoke. A yoke is a very simple device, but an effective one. It's a wooden crossbar that gets strapped to the back of the necks of two animals, joining them together, thus allowing them to work in unison and maximizing their strength. Commonly seen, two oxen are yoked together to plow a field, donkeys are yoked to pull a cart, and so on. It's fantastic and works really well if the animals are of the same kind and of about the same size. Otherwise, if you have a weak animal and a strong animal, those animals are going to get worn down really quick, almost worse off than if it was just one animal pulling. If you have a tall animal and a short animal, they're not going to walk in a straight line, and that cart is going to be walking in a circle. If you have two different kinds of animals, you have those issues plus the issues of attitude. Two animals having different purposes and moving in different directions, physically pulling apart from one another. So a command to not be unequally yoked makes a lot of sense. It's a really practical instruction for us. Actually, it was so important that uh, the Jewish, it was in the Jewish law. It says, you shall not, not plow with an ox and a donkey together because it's not helpful for you. So now when we think in terms of marriage, the yoke being a bond between two people, and of course marriage is a relationship where um, one person is as united as a humanly possibly being with another person. It's the greatest bond that we can experience. They are yoked together. It attaches them, uh, but when that bond is unequal, it causes tension in the relationship. One person pursuing God and the other not. They're moving in different directions. It doesn't work as well that way. Therefore, this understanding of the passage is very practical and applicable. However, I don't think this is the main point that Paul is getting at. So before we get to what is Paul actually talking about, I want to pause and I want to give two addresses. And the first is to the unmarried in this room. You know what? This interpretation checks out. It makes sense. When there's two people with different passions and purposes being joined together, it's a recipe for disaster. So I urge you, if you're in the position or when you're in the position of considering someone as your spouse, put this on the priorities list. Make sure that you are each moving towards Christ together. Your marriage and your relationship with God will both be richer for it. Now, second, To those of you who might have found yourselves in a position that you would classify as being unequally yoked, and there are many ways and reasons how you could have ended up in there, really what I want to say to you, there is no condemnation for you. 
Paul might not primarily be talking about marriage in this text, but he does very specifically address it in his first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, is actually very specifically about being in a relationship with opposing beliefs. The message that Paul gives in that first letter is this. It is best to stay with it. He actually says that by doing so, you make both your spouse and your children holy. Now that is a message for another time, but for this morning we say there is reason and purpose for you. On the other end of the spectrum, if you've been married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever has decided to leave, again, Paul tells us, you know what, your hands are clean. There is no condemnation for that. So no matter your current circumstance, I want to pray a blessing for each and every one of the marriages in this room, part of our family, that we would love and serve just as Christ has loved us. So how come this passage is not primarily about marriage? The shoe fits. It makes sense. Does it, though? Take a look around you. Not at each other. Take a look at, at the passages around this text. What have we been talking about the past several weeks? Last week, Pastor Rod was speaking on, you know, Paul's great efforts to remove obstacles. The week before that, Dad or Mel or whatever you guys call him spoke on the ministry of reconciliation, the transformation of a new creation. And the week before that, Pastor Matt spoke on our heavenly bodies and how we are to spend our time on this earth anticipating that day. No discussion of marriage. And in the chapters and in the weeks to come, without giving any spoilers, there's still no discussion of marriage. So, it would seem very odd and out of place that in the middle of all that we've been talking about, Paul would give a very strong command about marriage relationships. But if not marriage, then what? Well, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Here's another question for you that I want you to consider and ponder as we continue moving through this text. If we are not to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, then what are we to do? That's your question. Okay, so Paul now goes on into his rant of supporting arguments uh, to provide the evidence of why we shouldn't be unequally yoked to unbelievers. So we continue on in verse 14, which simply reads, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The simple answer is none. Of course, they're opposites, and opposites push against each other. Paul is getting at something deeper than just making a stark contrast here. And actually, for every analogy that he uses, there's a very specific purpose uh, that we'll only be able to briefly touch on this morning. There is the reason. Uh, he's reminding the church in Corinth of the righteousness that they have received and that Paul had just finished explaining to them in the chapter previous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read, For our sake he, me he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in chapter 6, he again addresses this. He says that with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? This is not a partnership at all. 
In fact, this is a war. You've been taken out of lawlessness. You have been put on the team of righteousness, and you have been equipped with the tools and the weapons to fight and stand firm and hold your ground on that team. There is no reason why you should revert back to your previous way of life. Paul's next argument. What fellowship has light with darkness? Fellowship or uh, can also mean commonality. Again, he had just finished addressing this to the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light, the knowledge of God has been revealed to you. The only way that darkness can enter in is if you turn the lights off. These are incompatible together. There is no common ground. There is no overlap between light and darkness. You have been given the light. So stop trying to make the two compatible. Leave the lights on. Next, what accord has Christ with Bilal? I don't know. What's a Bilal? Bilal is a name that's used to personify wickedness. The literal meaning of the word breaking down into two parts, Bilai meaning without, and Yal meaning to be of value. So together, Bilal means to be of no value, to be worthless. And in this exact context, it's a name given to Satan. So what accord has Christ with Satan? What accord has eternal life with worthlessness? And really, things are kind of starting to sound repetitive, aren't they? Because Christ and Satan, we also speak of them in terms of light and darkness. We also speak of them in terms of righteousness and lawlessness. Everything that Paul is just saying, he's repeating himself. So why say it again? It doesn't get any clearer than that. The most extreme contrast that we could ever make, Christ and Satan. It also gives a pretty good punch to the church in Corinth. Because Paul had to give them a harsh word in his first letter. 1 Corinthians 10, we read, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And to us, that kind of sounds pretty obvious. But Paul had to tell them for a reason, because that is exactly what they were doing. The church in Corinth was continuing with their idol worship, continuing to go to pagan festivals. At the same time, they're participating in the Lord's Supper, taking communion with one another. These two things are incompatible. There is no harmony between them. You cannot do both at the same time. It's one or the other. Next, Paul says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So now he's starting to make the connection of, this is our spiritual reality. You are on this side. Making the connection back to our original statement. So do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. There's no compatibility, compatibility between the two. For believers and unbelievers share a different portion. They're on a different path in this life, and that path will lead to a different end. The portion of the believer is the gift of eternal life. The portion of the unbeliever is none. There is no portion. It's the absence of it. It is eternal death. And the final contrast, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
And it's interesting because they actually do have an agreement. Our first commandment tells us that, found in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. The agreement is, idols stay out, period. And now we can discover the big why. Why did Paul work through this big rant, giving all of these comparisons? The reason we are not unequally yoked with unbelievers is not just for practicality's sake. It's not just because it makes our life a little bit easier. Rather, it is to demonstrate how incompatible our old life is with the new life, the new creation that we have been living. Unbelievers then isn't necessarily a specific person. It's more so a way of life, the life lived as an unbeliever. You know, the church in Corinth, it's not all that different than the culture around us today. For things that they had valued, things that they had esteemed, things that they strive after are vain pursuits. Money, power, sex, food. Sounds familiar to the world around us? Paul is concerned that the Corinthian church is eager to partner with anyone or anything that can help boost the status in their community, even if that means making deals, partnerships, joining with people with extremely opposing and incompatible beliefs. As long as it makes them look better, then they are willing to try it. Paul is saying there's no amount of status, no amount of relevancy, no amount of money that is worth surrendering our biblical convictions. For, in verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God. What Paul is doing here is very clearly connecting all of the dotted lines that he's been drawing in this letter and in his first letter to the church in Corinth and plainly telling the church that the old ways of false worship are incompatible with the new life that you have been given. Paul is prohibiting the church to partake in idolatry and an ungodly living that is contrary to the gospel. He's saying, guys, you have been called out of this. You don't need those things anymore. You've been given something far greater. So step completely away from it. Now, in the next section that Paul opens up to, he introduces a variety of quotes from the Old Testament. And the point we're getting at is that we are now participants of the covenant and God has made us the temple of God. He's helped explain to us why such the contrast is so important. So let's take a look. Finishing in verse 16, he is saying, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I love the imagery that's provided of God dwelling with us because it always stands as such a milestone in our biblical history. It begins with uh, God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve where he walked with them in perfect unity. And then God comes to dwell with us through his redemptive plan. He takes, Egypt, or he takes Israel out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness wandering. And there God says, I will build my tent and I will come and be with you. I will live with you. And then in the New Testament, John opens up his book saying, the word became flesh and dwelt 
among us. That is, Jesus came to live with us, and we have seen his glory. Now, every time we see God coming to dwell with his people, it's entirely out of his own initiative. God decided, I will go closer to you. Now we read in our passage, that dwelling has come to us because we have been made the temple. That dwelling has come within us. Here Paul is quoting two passages uh, that are really worth taking a look at. The first is found in Leviticus chapter 26. It's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen to this. I will make my dwelling among you, and I will walk among you. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. That's what we're quoting. And then Leviticus says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke. And I've made you walk upright. He said, I set you free from that life. I've brought you out of slavery. I broke those chains for you. Now you are free to live rightfully for me. Do you remember our question? If we're not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers, what are we to do? Clue one, the yoke is broken. This is God's promise to Israel. And Paul is drawing on another quote here, found in the book of Ezekiel, that's going to open up the doors of that promise. Uh, at this time, the nation of Israel is living in a divided kingdom, and God is calling his people back and saying, I will dwell with my people as one group again. Ezekiel 37 my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We are now that sanctuary. We are now that temple. and We are put in the midst of this world so that the nations may know the glory of God. We're God's representation to the world. We are God's ambassadors. Therefore, 2 Corinthians verse 17, Paul continues. He says, therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. It's a passage like this that we need to be really cautious on how we interpret this. Uh, what does it mean? to be separate, to touch no unclean thing, to move away from their midst. It really doesn't take much for us to get the idea that we're packing our bags, moving to the hills, never coming back to civilization again. The monks tried it, and sin still found them. That's not what we're getting at here. That's not what we're about. You know, this isn't really the strict command that it comes across as. God isn't saying, how dare you be with them? He's not saying, how dare you touch those filthy things? God has given us an invitation to come out. These three statements uh, come from Isaiah chapter 52. The statements of, go out, be separate, touch no unclean thing. But Isaiah chapter 52 starts with these words. Loosen the bonds of your neck. God has given a promise to his people, a people that have been put in slavery, a people that have been exiled. He has given them a promise that a savior is coming. Loosen the bonds of your neck. 
for not to be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Who are we to be yoked to? Loosen the bonds of your neck. We are free to come out from them. We're not condemned for being with them, where it's an invitation. You are free to come out from them. You can be separate from them. You no longer have to live in participation of that slavery. And as a result of that coming out of, Paul tells us, verse 18, these are God's promises to us. He says, Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here we're looking at a kind of a combination of three promises given in the Old Testament, which is really uh, a way of revealing that the covenant of David, the promise of the Messiah, is joining together and expanding to now include us into these promises. These promises are for us. This is Paul's conviction that the church is the fulfillment of God's covenant people. We are being welcomed into all of the promises of God throughout all of the biblical history. And it brings us to our final verse. Since we have these promises, quick recap, God's promises, his covenant to dwell with us, to be our God, and to make us his temple. Our response is to receive his invitation to come out of our bonds of slavery. And as a result, more promises, we will be welcomed. He will be a father to us, and we will be his sons and daughters. So since we have these promises, beloved, 7 verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves. I love the call of participation that Paul is putting on here, because really, it's God who cleanses us. Is it not? It is God who sets us free, God who makes us distinct. Yet, Paul is not saying, be cleansed. Paul is saying, cleanse yourselves. Obviously, there's a participation that we need to play here. We have a role to do. God initiated. Now it's our turn to respond. God has broken the yoke of slavery. God has loosened the bonds of our neck. Now it's up to us to take the yoke off and stop living as if it's still there. Don't return to, don't participate in the habits of our old life and the habits of the people around us who are acting contrary to Christ. That means no division, no gossip, apathy, vain pursuits, love of power, dominance, and so on. Anything, Paul is saying, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, do not, be, do not allow your names to be associated with it if it's contrary to Christ. And he says, by doing so, we read in our text, by doing that, we will bring holiness to completion in the fear of God in the reverence of God, in the recognition of who God is and the invitation that he has for us. That is our motivation to step closer to God and farther from the idols in our lives. To be holy is to be set apart, to be made distinct for a purpose, kind of like the red Smarties. 
You open a box of Smarties, you pour them out on the table, you sort them, and you put the red ones over here, and you save them for last, right? You have just made those Smarties holy. They have been set apart. To be holy is to be set apart. To be yoked is to be tied to. When we remove our yokes and step out of the patterns of our world, then we are free to step into holiness. For what purpose? The ministry of reconciliation, the message that Paul has been building for chapters now. For if we are tied to this world, we become a representation of this world. To represent Jesus, then we must look distinctly like Jesus. And how do we get there? We fight with the weapons of righteousness that we looked at just a week ago. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God make up the weapons of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In a couple of weeks from now, we're going to continue on this trend of weapons of righteousness because Paul comes back to it himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So in conclusion, in this passage, we started with a command. Do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Don't be bonded to this world. Followed by the reasoning, because the false worship and the idolatry of the world is incompatible with the temple of God, which is now you as you have been invited into all of the promises that God has given. You have been welcomed. Then he ends with our time of response to receive the invitation to step out of the bonds and live our physical lives in step with our spiritual reality. We're to be noticeably different from this world that we are living in. As a participation to this invitation, we have the table of the Lord.